0: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good whatever time you're listening to this podcast. My name is James Alban, and this is episode 26 of The Last Line. Thank you very much for joining me. In today's episode, I speak to author and documentary maker Matthew Field. Uh, Matthew co-wrote with A.J. Chowdhury the book Some Kind of Hero, the remarkable story of the James Bond films, and uh, james bond and the james bond films uh dominate the conversation uh of this podcast um but also if you're not a james bond fan there's plenty of stuff uh for you to still enjoy i think it's still a very interesting conversation with someone who uh, has spent a lot of time researching the franchise we talk about matthew's career how he got started we talk about Uh, some other films that he has worked on behind the scenes stuff for, such as The Italian Job, uh, even Mamma Mia! Here We Go Again. So without further ado, here is Matthew Field.
1: I saw it on Sunday. Funny enough, not in Barnes. Oh, really? At the Olympic, yeah.
0: Oh, okay. that's a
1: nice cinema. Well, I've never been there before. It's the first time I've been there. It was amazing.
0: Yeah, it's really nice, isn't it? Yeah, and
1: they, and they and, and that screen one, they showed a view to a killing. Then I mean, I, I I was too young to see it when it came out, but I, it was the first time I'd actually seen it on the big screen. Oh, nice. I love seeing those old Bond films on the big screen. There's still a handful I've never seen. But it was amazing. It was a great pristine print. Oh, we can talk about it if you want on the thing. But it was, uh, it was, it was fantastic. Like, I hope they're going to do more.
0: Yeah, well, well, let's let's start there because I've never actually seen a Bond film on, well, not a classic Bond film on the big screen. Probably as far back as I go in terms of seeing Bond in the cinema was probably some of the Pierce Brosnan stuff when I was younger. How old are you? I'm 25.
1: Yeah, so I'm 39. So I saw first one I saw was Goldeneye, but then I had that massive gap when we were kids where they didn't make it. Right. So that's yeah. So a lot of my childhood was there was never any Bond movies. So
0: how did you? Cause so were you into Bond from
1: early on? The First Bond film I ever saw was Goldfinger, and I saw that in about 1986 when I was about five. And my dad showed it to me. He must have just videoed it off of TV. And I just fell in love with the Bond films as as soon as I saw them. Um, And the very first film I ever saw in the cinema, the first trip I ever had as a kid um, inside a movie theatre was to see The Living Daylights the following year, 1987. And I was way too young to see it. I knew nothing about the Mujahideen or, you know, what was going on in Afghanistan. And that all must have gone completely over my head. But I just... And then that opening shot of Bond, like racing down the the Rock of Gibraltar on top of the Land Rover. I loved the um, a song and the Aston Martin with those skis that came out of the side. Um, I just just will never forget that first trip to the cinema. And I think there's only been one movie I've seen in in that time since that has given me that same thrill, and that was Jurassic Park. Um, a lot of people say that. Every generation has a Spielberg movie that's theirs. And I think for any kid that was 12 in 1993, it was Jurassic Park. That's, that's
0: interesting because it's interesting you say it was the first film you saw at a cinema, I live in daylights, because I have a similar thing with um, Star Wars because I saw The Phantom Menace, which looking back, not, not a great first film. <laughs> But it, you know when you're, what well, I must have been, well, it came out ninety nine, didn't it? So I don't know five six, maybe not even that maybe, um, and so that you know that sort of hooked me on Star Wars. So I, it is something about seeing your first film on the big screen and that really sort of captures you and and gets you into something. So you saw the living daylights at the cinema.
1: Yeah. And I remember I was completely hooked on Bond by then. And I must have known that, that Bond films came out every other year, because I think at that point I, I was old enough to work out. I remember having this list of Bond films that I, that I think it was in like Flix magazine, which was like this free newspaper that you got inside cinemas, And I had this at six years old. And I just remember just digesting and consuming all the information in there. And it listed every Bond film and the year they came out. And I was looking at it thinking, you know, Spy Who Loved Me, 77, Moonraker, 79, and so on. And you get Living Daylights, 87. I think there's got to be a Bond film in 1989, which of course there was. And I remember just waiting that two years until I was eight, until that film came out, and then being absolutely disappointed when it had a fifteen certificate and I wasn't going to be able to see it. Mm. And in those days, you had to wait a whole year before films came out on, on sell-through um, and VHS rental. And I just then remember having to wait till 1990 to see it. And then you'd race down to the video shop on a Saturday afternoon, and they'd have like four copies of Licence to Kill. And you just sh- hoping that you were gonna get there and get a copy of it in time. And I remember the first couple of weeks it was gone, and you couldn't couldn't get it. But um, yeah, I remember absolutely devouring Licence to Kill. And then we had this massive six year gap. So most of my childhood growing up, you know, sort of like into my early teens, there wasn't a Bond movie. And, you know, you talk. I talk to a lot of Bond fans who are older than me. And, you know, they talk about growing up on those Roger Moore Bond films in the 70s and, you know, having one after another every other year. I had none of that. And it wasn't until GoldenEye came out in 1995. That was when I think I really became the Bond fan that I sort of am today. And it's interesting. You speak to a lot of people that, well, that age when GoldenEye came out. So anybody that's sort of like in their eight, late late 30s now, there's this sort of like subculture division, like the GoldenEye generation. We all grew up on that movie. And you talk about, you know, our dads loving those movies in the 60s. Um, or you've got another group that, you know, just remember The Spy Who Loved Me. That's their film that they sort of like put up on the pedestal. I think for anybody that's my age, I think it's GoldenEye because it was the first Bond film of our generation that we sort of owned and was sort of our film. And I won't have anybody diss Pierce Brosnan. It seems to be a really fashionable thing right now in a Daniel Craig era to say, oh, weren't those Pierce Brosnan films absolutely awful? And I absolutely disagree. I think GoldenEye is a classic. And there's so many elements in that in that movie that are incredible. I think they tried to do a lot of things with the, with the three subsequent films, Tomorrow Never Dies, um, The World Is Not Enough, and Die Another Day. And I just don't think that the films were really to make that leap, which they did with Casino Royale. Um, but I think GoldenEye is an awesome movie. And I think it, it speaks volumes for a specific generation. I just absolutely love it.
0: Yeah, GoldenEye, it was because ITV just constantly show bonds, don't they? All the time. And Goldeneye, GoldenEye was on a few weeks ago. And I've got a friend staying with me at the moment. And he was probably, it's fair to say, like a bit snooty when I was like oh we'll put golden eye on and then the credits rolled at the end and he was like that's a good bomb film isn't it
1: yeah it's just got all the ingredients i just remember seeing it for the first time it kept all of those elements from those old bond films I mean, it opened straight onto the gun barrel logo which we want every bond film to start on none of this putting the gun barrel at the end business which they seem <laughs> to be doing lately thank goodness it's back where it should be um but um it, and and you know it's it's got that 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 jump off the dam the bungee jump off the dam at the beginning which just sets it up and and I think it's it, it's it's I think Sean Bean's great I think Famke Janssen playing on a top is a memorable villain you need someone that's memorable um, you know it's all it's, it's all very well having a wounded you know villain that's you know got this agenda et cetera, or you've got these these modern Bond women which I think are absolutely fantastic but I think you've, they've got to have sort of, sometimes they've got to have sort of like a pantomime quality to them. And I think Fampke, as On the Top, did. And she was really memorable. Um, I actually even like the Eric Sarah score. Everybody hates that score. Hated that score when it came out. A lot of Bond fans said it. it wasn't John Barry. But I think if you like Goldeneye, I think it's so much now part of the DNA of that movie. It's the sound of Goldeneye. And it's so 90s that you just kind of forgive it now and accept that's what the score is and it's actually quite good.
0: Yeah, I think it places it, it definitely place it in a time doesn't it i think it maybe because the score feels slightly less tight like timeless than some of the bond films but i don't think that's necessarily a bad thing
1: i mean when you watched it the other day with your friend i mean what did you think of the score when you when you heard it on the movie i mean did you have any 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 thoughts on it did you think it was terrible did you think it was good
0: i mean i don't think i was ever like because also my friend is another musician so he's very fussy about music and films and at no point did he mention the score in terms of it being a bad thing so i think on that basis it probably succeeded um and just in terms of like well it wasn't overtly like we didn't think oh it's two nineties or i just think it fits with the tone of the film to be honest
1: I totally agree with you. It does fit with the tone of the film. I love what David Arnold did afterwards with, with, with the Bond scores. I think he was a, a tremendous asset to the Bond team, um, especially what he did with Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace. I think they're his two best scores. But I think Goldeneye, I'm so pleased it was Eric Sear, and and it, and, it, and it is what it is because that movie, to me, is perfect, and it should just stay as it is. It should, it's a, it's a, it's a timepiece from the 90s that we all now love and cherish. Did you see Pierce Brosnan did that? Um, did that
0: live commentary on Esquire, GoldenEye.
1: Yeah. yeah, that was great. <laughs> I loved it. I thought it was brilliant. I, I loved It was it. heartbreaking when he,
0: when he told the story about the Aston Martin.
1: Oh, God, yeah, yeah. Well, how he lost it in the that, fire.
0: Yeah, that was like he wanted Aston Martin for so long, then the production team gave it to him, and then it just burnt in the fire, and all he's got is the nameplate of, like, this belongs to pierce however.
1: i know i know he's a really nice guy though i think he was such a good bond for the time i mean it as i said it's so easy to to knock the bond before i mean a generation ago it was fashionable to knock roger moore now roger moore bond films are classics and everybody loves them and i think that will i think audiences have come back to the brosnan films and, and i really appreciate what he did because if it wasn't for Pierce Brosnan, we wouldn't be watching Bond films today.
0: Do you think it's still fashionable to not Pierce Brosnan, or do you think people are starting to come around to it? Because like, when when he did that watch-along, it felt like there was a lot of love for Brosnan and the Bond films he did.
1: Um, well, I'm hoping that that's what's happening and that people are, are now appreciating what he did. Um, yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe it is, it is changing. I think the love for GoldenEye, out of those four films. Yeah. I mean, that's the one that's really stood the test of time. And I think even he says that on there. Um, and as I said, I think they made some really bold choices in the, th- in the three films that came afterwards. Um, I never felt like they were repeating what they did before. I think they were really, the producers were, were really clever, really trying to push the envelope. I mean, Tomorrow Never Dies, the second one, I actually think it's the most enjoyable of the four. Um, oh, it, oh. It, <laughs>
0: controversial
1: okay why why
0: well i think golden is the the one right
1: i think it's uh, the classic i think tomorrow never dies is, is very enjoyable to watch i think there's i, I think, think you can see there's more money on the screen
0: see i'm a world is not enough guy now that's interesting which i think a lot of people don't agree with
1: i think there's so many great things in there i think sophie marceau's character is absolutely brilliant electric king i think she's really well written yeah um, you can see that the DNA of what they were doing with the Daniel Craig Bond films was in that movie. You can see that that from from that early on, they really wanted to push the franchise in that direction.
0: Is that the first one where they had, I'm trying to remember now, all the information from the book. Is that the one where the first one they had Neil Purvis and Robert Wade writing on it?
1: Yes, that's the first one they wrote, yes. Uh,
0: and they've, they've been going through solidly, haven't they? Through the Daniel Craig films.
1: Yeah, yeah, they no time to though. It's their seventh screenplay, which is an incredible run when you think the amount of years that they've been there for.
0: Yeah. And they've actually managed to. I mean, I, I feel like it's been up and down in terms of reception and stuff. But I don't think you'd necessarily know if you were just a casual fan that they were written by the same people.
1: I think that shows their skill as writers, though. Neil Rob are brilliant writers. Yeah. I mean, look at their track record outside of Bond. Some of the other screenplays that they that they've written. Um, I watched "Let Him Have It" again um, earlier on this year, which was their first movie um, directed by Peter Medak. A fantastic film, um, but I think what the Bond films show—the ones that they've written—is that they've written for two very different incarnations of Bond. I mean, Brosnan's very different to Craig, um, and what they did with Casino Royale—they um, were there for the very first draft, and they were there that you know they steered that movie in that direction on the page. Um, and the same with the same with Skyfall. I mean, it, you know, really originated with, with them. Um, but even some of the things in die another day, I think we can sit here and we can criticize die another day, nearly 20 years later. But I think that that, a lot of that comes from the director. The director is saying, this is the movie I want to make. And the writers are working within the confines of what the director wants to do. You look at the, you know, the early drafts of die another day, they were, and early ideas, and early story meetings, was was they liked the idea of a cold war thriller. They were, but they were they were citing films like The Ipcress File and all that stuff about Bond being abandoned for, uh, you, you know, for, for a length of time being in prison. Um, you know, and I, I think all of that is really, really interesting what they're doing with that. And even then, they were going back to the to the Fleming books and looking within the pages of Fleming. What can they take from this? Um, so I think that you know, Die Another Day has some great ideas in it. I think it's got some great design in it. Um, it maybe went a step too far. Maybe you know there were certain visual effects which shouldn't have been in it. Maybe we don't need invisible cars, but that's—it's very easy to criticise something twenty years later. Um, if you look at the reviews for Die Another Day at the time, everybody loved it immediately when they saw it in two thousand and two. Okay, in time they started to criticise it, um, but I think when Neil Perlis and Robert Wade sat down to do that movie, they had some great ideas there. They were. They were highly original writers. And the fact that they're there all these years later, you know, is a testament to their ability as writers. And also they know their bond really well. I mean, they're big, they're bond experts. I mean, you sit there and talk to them, they'll outbond you any day with their with their knowledge. They know, they know every chapter, every paragraph of those um, 14 Fleming books so well. Um, and you know you'll say to them about they'll come up with an idea. It's, oh no, we can't do that because that was in that was we had a skiing sequence in that film or this film. So they know they know their way around the franchise really, really well. And yeah. they obviously worked very well with Barbara Broccoli and Michael Wilson. Um, and I hope they stay because it just shows you that they can adapt. They're not a one-trick pony. They can they can't just write one type of Bond movie.
0: Yeah, and they seem to adapt well to other directors coming in skyfall is a completely like you say is a completely different movie to die another day
1: yeah die another day um, is a complete well look, look at die another day compared to the next one casino royale that's the biggest contrast between two movies you're ever going to see in a franchise and they're both written by the same guys so yeah i hope they stay I ha- i'd love to see what they do when they bring in the next bond and when they change direction again to see what happens after daniel craig because this is arguably the most successful um, era of the franchise of all time. I'd say even more so than the 60s. Critically, mm. commercially, they're way up there again. You know, you look at Skyfall, took over a billion dollars. So, you know, even inflation adjusted, that that just peaks Thunderball in 1965, 66. So, no, I want I Purvis and Way to stay there. I just want to see what they do next.
0: Any thoughts on, I mean, it's going to be... A while again till no time to dies out, and there's all these rumours about Tom Hardy, which personally I'm not buying particularly. What's your while I've got a Bond expert, I might as well ask you.
1: Well, I'm probably going to disappoint you in my answer because I really don't want to get drawn into the argument about about who is the next James Bond, and the reason for that is I think that when Daniel Craig was cast as Bond, he was quite left field. No one saw that casting coming. Um, Pierce Brosnan the more so, I think, because he'd been waiting there in the wings. But nobody could have imagined Daniel Craig was going to be the next Bond. And that, I think, is down to the skill of the Bond producers, Barbara Broccoli and Michael Wilson. I really believe that when that next Bond is cast, where there's immediate backlash from the press because they think, oh, no, that person can't possibly be Bond. I think you have to trust them because they've never got it wrong. They know how to make these movies better than anyone. They have produced these films on their own now for 25 years without Cubby and Harry. They've done an amazing job. And I think whoever becomes the next Bond might not be obvious to us on the surface. But when they cast that person, I guarantee you they've made the right decision and as you said we're a number of years off we don't know where we are in this current world we don't know how long it's going to be before they can make another bond film or what type of bond film that they're actually going to make and let's let's i mean look at it it takes it takes a good couple of years to make these films this next film no time to die won't be with us theatrically until um april of next year we hope and then after that (laughs) Possibly, who knows, a couple of years after that. So really, really, aren't we looking at 2023 at the earliest for another Bond? And so many talented uh, actors could come out of the woodwork in that time.
0: This is, which is why I've been disappointing friends for the last few weeks when uh, Tom Hardy's, you know, because the rumors started recently, didn't they? I mean, Tom Hardy's always been rumored to be in with a shout, but it was like, Rumoured in the last few weeks that like oh yeah they're definitely announcing it all the betting shops have stopped taking bets on him and i just thought even if it is tom hardy and i'd be happy with tom hardy i just didn't buy that it was a real announcement uh, uh, because i just thought you wouldn't announce it before craig is finished it would just be weird and slightly disrespectful
1: yeah I i think it's a while off before you hear who is going to be the next? Yeah, James. I'm sure Barbara and Michael have got their ideas. I'm sure they're thinking, but we're a long way from learning that that big news. But whatever that news is, I guarantee it's uh, it will be the best possible outcome. I can't wait and to, to see honest. who the next James Bond is and what they do with it. I can't I can't wait to see where they go next. Because that's where it's going to be. But
0: to be honest, right now I just want to see No Time to
1: Die. (laughs) 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 You and everyone else, James. I can't wait to see it. It looks a great film, though, doesn't it? What do you think? It
0: does. It does look great. I, 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 I'm a huge fan of Rami Malek because I, Mister Robots, one of my all-time favourite TV shows. Um, so I was very happy to see him. I do have a, I think, along with quite a few people, that I reckon he's going to be Doctor No because it just looks like he is um which I'd be fine with um but yeah I think it looks really good I think w- w- without disrespecting Sam Mendes in any way I'm quite happy that it's not another Sam Mendes film just because I think I like the Bond films because you every every film is its own sort of self-contained obviously there are through lines in some of them and but i like having different directors come in and do their own bond and i thought i loved skyfall and i was less sold on spectre um so i'm glad that like it's someone else coming in doing something a bit different
1: and i think we'll see bring, well i think bringing a new director and keeps it very fresh um, and I think they've made some very interesting choices for the directors that have helmed these Daniel Craig films. Number one, you had Martin Campbell there for Casino Royale, a perfect choice because he reinvented Bond back in 1995 with Goldeneye, and he did it brilliantly again with Daniel Craig in Casino Royale. Mark Foster with Quantum of Solace, I love all of his previous movies. I don't know if you've seen The Kite Runner, um, Finding Neverland, Monster's Ball. Stranger Than Fiction, he's fantastic. And I was so excited when I heard that he was doing uh, doing Quantum. I mean, think he did some amazing things in that movie. It's such a tight movie. There's such, some really original things in there. And I think if you go back to that that film, you see so much more in it that you didn't see the first, second, or, or, or third time. Sam Mendes, well, I mean, he's, he's a master. He did some brilliant work with Skyfall. He made that film and, you know, that 2012 was a great year to be in, United Kingdom, the Olympics. It felt very much that, you know, that DNA was there in that Bond film, was back and it was brilliant. I loved it. Um,
0: and you Spectre, can see uh, why they invited him back.
1: Yeah, of course. Why would you not, why would you not invite him back after that, yeah. that amazing success? Yeah. And I think there's some really good things in, in Spectre. What I love about that is the way he cites the Roger Moore Bond films, you know, more so as, as the, you know, there he is citing Live and Let Die a couple of times throughout that film. I really love that. And then Carrie Fukunaga, I mean, I remember seeing um, a movie that um, he made called Sin Nombre um, at the Edinburgh Film Festival many years ago. And, you know, he was really young when he directed that film, and it was really, really good. If you get the chance to go back and watch it, it's really good. Look it out. Um, So I was really excited when I heard that he was directing No Time to Die. So I think all of the directors that Barbara and Michael have chosen for these recent movies, have been amazingly talented guys, um, and all perfect for the job. I think,
0: and they've all been cast very well. Like the the vi- like, just if you look at the villains, some amazing names in the mind. You, that's f- that's true, probably of of
1: any Bond. But well, I think now what's interesting is it's become it's become a role to be proud of. I mean, look at look at the as you said, the pedigree of actors that they've had in the recent films. Javier Bardem. Came to Bond, an Oscar winner. Christoph Waltz came to Bond, an Oscar winner. Um, and then uh, Rami Malek comes to Bond, an Oscar winner. You know, they're getting really, really great actors to come and play these these uh, these Bond baddies. And I think it's almost like now, maybe before, it might have been harder to attract that pedigree of talent. Now Bond is way up there artistically, that it's drawing that kind of talent. But then again, you look at it. It's interesting. Christopher Walken was in *The View to a Kill*, and he'd won an Oscar for *The Deer Hunter*. But I think, really, apart from him, um, you know, they they tended to be less well-known actors that have taken up the part. Or talented guys. I must, I must add, and women. I mean, some great, great talent they've had. an international talent. But I think lately, it's drawing A-list talent to the Bond baddie. Um, and I, as you said, I can't wait to see what Rami Malik does with Safin in No Time to Die.
0: Some kind of hero which you wrote with AJ Chowdhury, how yes. did that come about and how do you even approach a sort of mammoth book? Like, cause it's like, cause, cause obviously you've written books about other films before and you've, you've worked on other stuff before, like we'll probably talk cover the Italian job at some point, but that's like one film.
1: Some kind of hero, the remarkable story of the James Bond films. Um, I had a lot of sleepless nights over, and I think so did AJ Chowdhury. We we, we came up with the idea many years ago about writing um, a proper biography of the of the Bond movies because we both we both read so much about these films, was, and we thought, why did not we collated all of this into into one book? And at the same time, doing so many of our own primary interviews. And I think for for that book, we did over a hundred new interviews. Um, with cast and crew, and then we wanted to tell a story that hadn't been told before. I think there's, we stand we stand on tall shoulders. I think the most I think that the most the groundbreaking book on the Bond films, the first one was the James Bond film, was by Stephen J. Rubin um, in 1981, which was a fantastic book, which was the first one to really go behind the scenes of the making of the Bond films, and then in the late 90s, early 2000s. The DVDs came out for the first time, the special editions, and John Cork, who is an incredible Bond expert and historian, directed and produced a series of documentaries, one on every movie. And I think those were the two um, the, the, the two sections of the Bond history, that the two people that really put the Bond history down on the page and on the screen. But what we wanted to do was find a new path through it, because a lot of people said to us, why are you writing this book? Because Everything that could ever be written on the Bond films has been done. It's out there, and I said, "Well, that's." OG and I said, "That's where we want to start. This is the beginning for us." Um, and we sat down. Um, we both wanted to write this book for a long time. Um, we we tackled it by, as I said, trying to find a new path through each of the each of the films and trying to get you to look at the films in a different way. So maybe after reading the You Only Live Twice chapter, we want you to go back and want to watch that film again and maybe look out for things that you hadn't seen the first time around and get a new perspective into what actually went into each of those individual films well
0: because the basic structure of the book is really just going chapter by chapter through each film was that always going to be the approach i think and
1: i really wanted to tell this story from beginning to end i think it's a really fascinating story of not only cinema but popular culture but also the also the studio system. I think what's what's fascinating is how the bonds the bonds have always had to negotiate the changing regimes of United Artists, MGM. That's always been something that's 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 one thread of the story which goes through all of the all of the all of the films. And I think we wanted to tell that story. We also wanted to tell how you know you had these two incredible producers, Harry Saltzman and Cubby Broccoli, that Set, set the style for these films up and then you've got second generation with, with Barbara and Michael who have taken it and and made it even more successful than it was um, back then so I think we needed to tell the story in order but at the beginning we wanted a chapter on Ian Fleming a chapter on Cubby and a chapter on Harry because we felt that these were three important characters that we, that we were, that were going to be setting our story up and we need to know a little bit about them before we get into the into telling the story from Dr. No. So we didn't want to start with Dr. No because every Bond book before it started with that. We felt there was history before Dr. No which set the blueprint for that film. Cubby had, be, had, had made a whole bunch of movies under his Warwick Films banner in the 50s and he used a lot of the technicians that worked on the Bonds. Um, Harry had had made a, a bunch of, of Woodfall films um, which were kitchen sink dramas in the late 50s, early 60s. And he, he he too had had a really interesting background. So we felt that we needed to tell those stories before we got to Dr. No. And then we wanted to stop to talk about how Covey and Harry's partnership um, broke apart. Um, then we pick up the story again with The Spy Who Loved Me. And then we wanted a chapter between Licence to Kill and Goldeneye talking about why there was a six year gap between Bond movies. And that gap almost gave us um, an opportunity to, to sort of to change the direction of the story because um, I think so many things happened in that time, and I always think about it in in my head that the classic Bond films ended with License to Kill, and the new series sort of like began with Goldeneye. So we kind of like needed to reset, needed to retool in that chapter before we started to take you on another journey on the next twenty five years of this um, history. So I think you know to answer your question, James, we did always feel that we had to tell the story. In, in the order in which it happens, rather than darting all over the place, um, and you know we hope that if you start at the beginning, you feel like you're going on a journey, you feel like you're going through time with it. But we also feel that you can read it chapter by chapter and just dip in and read that and read that, and it still works. A bit like the Bond films, you can watch The Man with the Golden Gun on its own. You don't have to watch yeah. Didn't Let Die, you don't have to watch The Spy Who Loved Me right after.
0: Yeah, because I'll be completely honest, when I got the book, because it because it is uh, quite a hefty tome. The first thing I did was, well, I want to know what happened with Quantum of Solace. So I went and had a read of Quantum. Like, why did that end up the way it did? And then I eventually went back and and read through. What I found with this is like, it's a great uh, story. I think people who aren't interested in Bond necessarily or think, oh, I wouldn't want to read a big book about James Bond we'll still find something interesting in it because, like you said, the whole story of the the breakup and the partnership and the studio, all that kind of stuff, the whole bit with never say never again, all that stuff is you don't really need to be a Bond fan to find that interesting in terms of just the story and the relationships playing out, etc. But also I think if you are a massive Bond fan, when you've read it, it becomes suddenly a great like reference tool when you're watching a Bond film. You can be like, hang on, I read something about this in uh, and pull it out, which was what I was doing with Goldeneye the other week.
1: Um, we hope that we hope that those 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 later chapters, sort of Goldeneye through to um Spectre. I think they're certainly for us the chapters that Age and I are most proud of. I mean proud of the of the whole book, but because so much has been written about about the classic Bond movies, there's the there's the books, there's the incredible special edition Blu-rays which we've got, which have got the, which have got the commentaries, and I've got all the documentaries. But less has been written or said about GoldenEye onwards. Um, we because yeah. when the film comes out, it's all part of the, the marketing and the and the publicity, which is what it should be. So there's very there's the, there's very little about people going back and reflecting or about peeling back the layers. And we were very lucky to get some really interesting interviews. For example, Pierce Brosnan talked to us at length. We spent a long time talking to him for the book, and him reflecting um, on it. And so many new stories, such an such an interesting insight into what it was like for him to to come into this, and his his memories and anecdotes. It's obviously, of course, about Goldeneye in particular, the one that I think is is his favourite, as you saw from the from the watch along the other day. But you know, we spoke to every writer that went near the screenplays between Goldeneye and Spectre, and all of the directors um, contributed. In fact, we spoke to all of the living directors for the book, but interestingly, all the ones for the Brosnan and the Craig films give such a fascinating new perspective on, on their movie and in great depth. So I think for us, they're the chapters which, when, it, when, the, when we finished writing, we thought, yeah, this is probably where... It, it, it this is probably where it's at its best where he really brought new material to the table
0: when you were writing it and like at the very start did you imagine that you'd be able to get Piers Brosnan to sit down with you and talk to you at length about it were you confident that that was going to happen those sort of key interviews
1: I don't think we ever thought that we would definitely get Pierce Brosnan to give us an extensive interview. I think what you have to do, James, is I think when you start a project like this, and it's the same with the Italian job, or it's the same if I'm making the documentary. Um, I'm in a documentary on Terminator 2 for Studio Canal for their latest Blu ray release. And I think with all of these projects, it always starts with okay, I've got an idea. Now I've got to try and get people on board. It's like producing a picture. You've got to be you've you've, you've got to position it so that they realise that they're in safe hands. So you're not trying to expose them or trip them up or do anything like that when you go for somebody high high profile. You want them to believe in what you're doing and that what you're doing is you're just trying to tell the truth. You're just trying to tell the story. Um, And I think that once you've got that and I think once you've got a bit of a reputation behind you, I mean, they always, you know that if you ever are going to be, if you're ever going to, you know, secure an interview with somebody that's high profile. You know, that people the first thing they're going to do is go and Google you and look you up, see what you've done before, mm. because they're not going to let you loose with uh, with major with major talent um, on a project if if you don't really have a track record. So the first thing that anyone will do will, will Google it. It's it's like you know, if anybody wants to interview me, I'm intrigued to know who that person is. I'm going to go and look them up. I want to know about them, and I think that's probably. Where you win is that if you've done, if you've got an interesting track record, they'll they'll talk to you. So no, we didn't for a single minute believe that all these people would talk to us. But as we got more people on board, you know, it was it was easier to get other people. And I think you know, I have got a reasonable, reasonably good reputation in the bond world. We know our subject. We've been in and around the bond subject for a long time. I think we're trustworthy, and people feel comfortable with us. So I think that, in a way, that's really played to our benefit. And we're obviously very proud of the book, and we had such a positive response from it. And I think what's most rewarding for us is that when people are like you, James, explain how you use the book when you're watching GoldenEye the other day, and then how you find me and you want to talk about it. And so all of a sudden, writing something like that, which takes a long time, um, mm-hmm. really pays off. Um, and that's what's most rewarding when you write anything. I mean, you're a creative. Yeah,
0: I think what I appreciate as well about the book is that it's obviously, you know, it's obviously written by fans and you can tell that. But I was a bit worried when I got it that it would be a bit like the edges would be sanded off, sanded off. You know what I mean? It would be like. No,
1: I, I, I know what you're saying, James. I, I appreciate that. But I mean, I, you know, we, 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 we told the story as as we saw it and as we heard it. And, um, you know, as writers, you. You, you join the dots. You listen to what someone says. You listen to what the next person says, and then and you extract the, the truth from that. Because you sometimes when you when you've interviewed over a hundred people about the same subject, you, people will remember things in different ways, and sometimes they'll remember it wrong. And you know they've got it wrong because you've read, you've got dates in front of you. You've got you, you you've got um, uh, more reliable sources on that particular story. So that's what you go with. So you you kind of make decisions through the writing as you go through because it, you know you can talk about one scene and you've got 10 people talking about it well you're going to take the most what you believe to be the most reliable account of that so i think that's where our responsibility really comes in as the authors of the story is to guide you through it with expertise with knowledge uh, and for you to have confidence in us as the writers that we're giving you the real story
0: How did you, which is probably a weird question to ask so late in the conversation, but how did you get into what you're doing now? How did you get to, to where you are?
1: When I finished my A-levels in 1999, the um, year the world is not on came um, out, I decided I didn't want to go to university straight away. I wanted to write. and I had this idea to write a book about um, the classic British film, The Italian Job, the Michael Caine original. It, that film at that time, it was just celebrating its 30th anniversary. It was getting a theatrical re-release. Everything in the late 90s that was 60s had become cool again, that Britpop period, you know, within then the music, um, you know, all of that time, the Mini Cooper was suddenly about to come back again. Everything about the 60s was cool. Michael Caine had had this iconic rebirth. And everybody was rediscovering The Italian Job, a film that I'd known for over 10 years before that because my dad had shown it to me when it was on TV. So I decided that I wanted to write a book about this and people kind of, I guess, thought I was a bit mad to try and write a book when I was 17 years old, but I did and um, I persevered with it. I got a lot of people on board. The producer of the film, Michael Dealey, was then living in Hollywood. Um, He he, um, said he'd help me. He got Michael Caine involved and that book just snowballed it. And, And I think the attitude I had to that project was is what I've taken to all of the books and documentaries and, and projects I've worked on since, is that you, is that you just keep believing in it and you snowball and and I use this term polite persistence pays off. Never take the first no um, as your answer. Keep going. You know, come back to that person when you've got a few more people. Um, and I pretty much got everybody that was still alive involved with the Italian job to to, to work on that book. And that book came out in two thousand and one when I was twenty. And um, and then, after that, I very quickly was asked by Paramount to work on their special edition DVD because they were just releasing it at the time, and they obviously wanted to do a documentary, and I'd recently been in touch with all of the people that had made this movie um, like at that point nearly thirty five years ago. And um, I said, "No, well, if I'm going to be involved, I want to co-direct and co-produce." And I think they reluctantly allowed me to do that. So that was my that's how I sort of like entered the business. And then not long after that, I did go to university. I did screenwriting. I finished. I came out the other side. And um, I began working for uh, film marketing agencies in London who make film trailers, promos, making ofs, because that kind of been my background. And I worked for uh, um, for seven years for a company called Picture Production Company, who have made a number of the Bond trailers. And there, I worked on a number of making of lots of DVD and Blu-ray extras. Um, Half an hour making offs for, for television, and um, all sorts of incredible stuff. And and then after that, um, I just carried on. And now, um, and, and now I, 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 I'm still doing things like that. But the biggest movie I did um, behind the scenes on was uh, Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again, um, which was interesting for me because that's that's not my genre at all. But I absolutely loved working on that film. Probably it was the most enjoyable project I've ever done. I was on that film for a year. Um, I did a film last year called The Turning with Finn Wolfhard from Stranger Things for Amblin. Um, so yeah, that's kind of been my, that's the quickest way to explain it to you Is so I started off writing a book which very quickly became a DVD extra which then propelled me into film marketing uh, and publicity.
0: What was it about the Italian job that made you post A-levels really want to write a book about the Italian job?
1: Well I think as a five-year-old, when I saw it, I was just mesmerised by the minis, and that, and it was the car chase. I just loved it, and that always stayed with me. And I've always loved cars, so I've always come back to it. Um, so no, it, 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 it the, the single answer to that, James, is the cars, was the Mini Coopers.
0: Do you think the Italian? Because I love the Italian job, and like I told you earlier, it's probably down to my dad. You know, it, it being his favourite film. We went to see it recently with the orchestra um, playing along. Although that actually makes you realise how little music is actually in the film. Like, you forget that the whole chase sequence is just the car sounds pretty much until they're... um, I think it's when they get onto the the water, that's when the music kicks in. Do you think the Italian job is sort of... I mean, it's obviously sort of considered a class. it's got classic in British culture it's got the sort of the classic lines quoted and the song is but do you think it's slightly underrated as a film and underappreciated I think, I think it's
1: got some really interesting undertones to it it's actually a really good question you're asking because the film Troy Kennedy Martin who wrote it was a TV writer um, he had a lot of success he um the Vise Z Cast, which is one of the biggest shows on British television at the time. Um, and he really wanted to break into movies. Now, this film, he wrote it as a reaction to Britain going into the common market, the EU, because at the time all that discussion was going on politically. Should Britain join or should it or should it remain independent away from away from the EU? And it, the, you know the it's a satire of that. It's the British going down to Europe showing stealing the gold from underneath the nose of the Italians and and getting away with it, well, almost, I guess. Um, and I think what was interesting is as we approached the fiftieth anniversary, I was talking back with the producer Michael Dealey, who very kindly wrote the foreword for me. And he said, well, in actual fact, what we made was the first Eurosceptic film, wasn't it? I said, yeah, I guess you're absolutely right. And he says, the fact that we're celebrating at the 50, 50th year, and Brexit's going on. We're now having the same argument that we had when we wrote it. Should we be in the EU or should we not be in the EU? So I think, you know, the answer to your question, is there more going on than it just being a, a postcard of of, of of 60s popular culture? I think, yes. I think there's this political undertone going on. Whether you whether you believe in Brexit or you don't, then I think it's just, a, it's a really interesting observation to, to make.
0: I just think as well, like, I don't know, it it, it feels like it's not maybe translated down the generations as much as some of the other films of that era, and I feel like that's a shame because actually if most people sit down and watch it, they go, oh, this is actually brilliant.
1: Well, the number one problem with it is it wasn't a hit in America, and still now... When you speak to Americans about it, you, you you know you gingerly go into a meeting with somebody and they say, "Oh, what have you what have you done?" And you you start to tell them about the book on the Italian Job, and they immediately think that it's the Mark Wahlberg version, the remake, okay, oh with Charlie's <laughs> And you, you very gently have to tell them that the actual fact was an original Italian Job, and it's far superior, and it's a classic in our country, and it starred Michael Caine. So I think that's your number one. Um, problem as to why it's not up there with those movies is because it didn't it didn't do well in america it never has really found its audience out there and i right. think the answer as to why it hasn't found an audience there is, is because it's not about america at all it's about yeah. British it's, it's a about very british film it's got yeah. british cars in it and it's got british stars in it so it's nothing to do with them and dare i say it As much as I love America and as much as I love the Americans, um, I think that they're possibly not interested in this film because it doesn't really speak to them. I think here it has found an audience and it has found um, a cult following. And I think the reason for that is and and, and the reason why we're still talking about it is that Michael Caine has remained a movie star. I mean, look, he's in Tenet for goodness sake. Yeah. He's still up there. He's in yeah. he's, he's in the number one movie at, at the box office of the UK if we've got a box <laughs> office at the moment. Um, so he's still contemporary. He's he's still doing big movies. The Mini Cooper, well, it's still driving around on the streets today. It, it might look different, but then it's a bit, it, you know, it, it, it's still here. It's it's voted car of the, of the century. Um, Quincy Jones, the music is incredible. It's got this great score. And the fact that it's got this really interesting underlying story, which is very, very relevant in this um, this in this um, era of Brexit. I think is the reason why maybe we're going back to it, and we're liking it, and we're enjoying it. and it is finding an audience here. Um, and last year, I went all over the country promoting and doing appearances with the book. And I, I was amazed at the places we were invited to to talk about it. First of all, we went to lots of car shows, which you'd expect us to be there. But we were invited to the v Museum to present the movie and to talk about it. Um, then I went to the Cheltenham uh, Literature Festival, you know, which you know we went on stage after David Cameron, which was an interesting experience. <laughs> and we spoke to nine hundred people about this movie. Wow. So we were going from the v to a literature festival to a, to a car festival, and then you know, then we were, then we were going to maybe to to introduce a film audience. So we were finding that there were so many people that wanted to talk about this film in its 50th year that I think it definitely has found its following here, but not in America. Um, But it's interesting. If you show it to Americans, they love it, of course, but they've got to discover it.
0: It's a hard film not to like.
1: Yeah, I think it is a hard film not to like, but then I would be very biased, because I've (laughs) probably seen it about half the time. (laughs) (laughs)
0: yeah going into bond an italian job um you're sort of by being a huge fan of them you're sort of you have an you already have a level of sort of expertise i i put inverted commas there because obviously as soon as you start digging around and doing interviews it you learn so much more so what's it like working on a project where you maybe don't have that as much?
1: Well, Studio now asked me to do a documentary for their new Blu-ray release of, of uh, Terminator 2. And I have to admit that when they asked me to do it, I'd never seen Terminator 2. So the first thing I did was to run out and watch it and to see what the, all the fuss was about. Because this is, movie has got a massive, massive following. Um, and interestingly, it's one of those films where it's better than... You know the sequel's better than the than the, than the first movie, or, or so the story goes. Yeah. Um, and my job was then to make a one-hour documentary um, about something I knew little about. And the first thing I thought about was several years ago, um, a director called Stephen Riley approached me because he was going to make the fiftieth anniversary movie about Bond called Everything or Nothing. And he was a fantastic documentary filmmaker. He made films on on the previous Bond about cricket. Um, and now he was making a film about Bond. And he hadn't at that time even seen all of the Bond movies. Um, and he sort of found me and came to me and said, "Right, where do I start? I'm making the 50th anniversary movie about the Bond films. Like, What do I read? Where do I start? Who do I need to talk to? And I sort of like, came on board on that movie as an editorial consultant and I just watched him consume stuff. And what amazed me about what he did is he read all of these interviews that I gave him, all of these books that I gave him, all of these documentaries that I told him to watch, which he watched all of it. And he spent days and days and days just absorbing himself into the world of Bond. But then I saw what he was doing, Is he said, the most important thing to do is to find an original way through this story. And My view of, 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 of this, not necessarily what the history books are telling me. And that's what I, what I sort of like found with Terminator 2 is that, <clears throat> again, the polite persistence pays off motto comes into play. Because when I started it, it wasn't a given that all these people were going to take part. It wasn't a given that Arnold Schwarzenegger was going to do an interview. We, we did have commitment from James Cameron, but we didn't have commitment from people like um, um, Edward Furlong, who played the kid in the movie. Um, so what we did is, is I then had to start finding these people. And I remember being out in Los, Los Angeles. To do the interview with um, James Cameron and I, and I thought I just really want to interview the cinematographer and I remember going through the equivalent of the phone book in Los Angeles looking for this guy and ringing all of, all of the people with the same initials as him in the phone book online hoping that eventually I'd find the, the, the right person which I did and said hey I'm doing interviews down at the shutter, down at the shutters hotel today I've got a film cruise anywhere can in interview interview for my documentary. And sure enough, this old guy turned up and he was absolutely incredible. And then it was just kind of finding my way through that story. And I think the most interesting thing about it was was the was the pace in which it was made and the urgency in which it was made? They had a, a release date and they were working backwards from it. But they were almost inventing technology to make it because they really pushed the envelope in terms of effects in that movie. And I really came to appreciate it in a different way. So the energy of my documentary had to be about pace. It was about building momentum. We, we've got to get there. We're racing. We're running out of time. We've got to get this movie finished. We've got to get it released on time. You know, is there an is there enough computer power in California to render all of these sequences before? The prints have to have to be made for opening weekend, and it was right up to the wire, right up to like two days before. There was there was still sequences that was that was um, still being finished before they had to had to um, you know strike the prints to get them to cinemas. And I was really proud of that piece of work because I came away from it and felt that you know if I was a, if I loved Terminator Two, and because and that was being made for me, would I have appreciated the documentary? And the first thing you do when you do something like that, is you go onto the forums and you start reading what people are saying about it, and people were saying really nice things about it. Because there'd obviously been Terminator 2 documentaries before. They'd been making old books before. The yeah. first thing I did was do exactly what Stephen Riley did with Bond, as I just went and got all of the books on Terminator 2 and read all of it, read all of Arnie's autobiography, all those things that anybody had ever said about it, and thought, right, now I've got to find my own path through this story that I don't know anything about. But make sure that by the end of it, I'm an expert. So that for me was a really challenging uh, project and something I'm particularly proud of.
0: Because I think your your, your initial instincts, wouldn't it, if you were we're going to make a documentary about Terminator, let's get the Terminator guy, like the expert on Terminator, to, to do it. But do you think it's almost better in a way that you you had no preconceived sort of notions other than you know you know knowing of it and.
1: I think it's that's certainly one way of coming looking in. at it that somebody can bring really fresh eyes to it, to a story that's been told mm-hmm. so many ways. I mean, it's a bit like Dara said, when AJ and I started the Bond book, it would have been very easy to fall into the trap set by the previous Bond historians by saying, this is the story and this is how you tell it. But we were very conscious of that, to step back that. No, we, to, we want to find our own way through the James Bond story um, and shed new light on it. So... I do think it's it's a good question. I think in in certain instances, yes, it is interesting to have someone fresh um, to bring a new perspective um, to a project. Um, and I think that's what really challenges you as a as a storyteller, because at the end of the day, we're telling stories, or, or as historians, is to is to bring something fresh to it, and it's a challenge when you're coming to a subject that you don't know too much about. Um, And you know, it's it's a bit like, and I don't think it's really for for this podcast, but when I worked on um, on Mamma Mia, here we go again. You know, it was about it was about fully immersing myself in that brand um, Mm. and the world of ABBA, and you're going to be in that world for a year. You're going to hear ABBA songs every single day. Whether you like (laughs) them or you hate them, that's going to be your world. So you better embrace it really quickly. And if you do, you can do an incredible job. And again, that's that's a movie um, in terms of the behind the scenes and the documentaries that I made, are some of the stuff that I'm particularly proud of because I always want to go the extra mile. And I look at the blu-ray for, for Mamma Mia and I look at all of the extras that we made. We made over two hours of extras to go on that film and they're really high production and quality, but really interesting. I don't feel that they just fluff. I feel they get under the skin of the movie. And I guess that's, that's kind of my job.
0: Also, not a film i would expect to have 200 hour, hours of, of extras but maybe that's being harsh towards mama mia here we go again i don't know like james i'm very you protected over that over i won't have life. a
1: bad word said about it okay <laughs> I, have, I had a great, a great time working on it i loved all the people that i met doing it and i actually think it's a really good film i think they did a really really good job of it considering uh, that first movie is pierce brosnan on series. that one Pierce Brosnan was in it, and I, I have—I I, wondered if you are going to even ask me about that, but um, I will tell you, I, it was a pinch yourself moment um, when um, I was sitting down and interviewing Pierce Brosnan at length. But spent seeing him every day on set—you know—that was an interesting experience, yeah. and um, he's just—he was just really nice, and he really embraced it, and he was so much fun. Um, you know, I never once saw him have a bad day on Mamma Mia. You know he was uh, uh,
0: if he was great. I think we've established that Pierce Brosnan is a great guy.
1: He's <laughs> a bit of a <laughs> man his
0: bond films and his bond films are great and if he happens to be listening, he'd be very welcome <laughs> on the podcast. So there you have it, Matthew Field. My thanks to Matthew for joining me on the show and my thanks to you, the listener, for joining me this week. Do come back next week when I will have another fantastic episode of the podcast for you to listen to. Next week, I am joined by comedian Tom Allen. Uh, so until then, I've been James Alban and this is The Last Line.